All right, thank you, Jason, for reading that. We're going to be in Psalm 5 this morning. For the next few weeks, we are going to be studying the Psalms. Uh, This fall, we're going to move into a study of Ecclesiastes, but we just finished up our series through 1 Peter, and now for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at various Psalms. Let's do this. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll study this together now. God, we give you thanks for gathering us together. You love your bride. Christ gave himself for the church. We thank you that that love is upon us this morning. We're thankful that we can gather around this table and physically be reminded of Christ's love for us. As we look at this psalm, we pray that you would lead us through it. We pray that by your spirit, you would plant these truths upon our hearts. Please encourage us. Please bring repentance. Please help us to follow you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 5. Before we jump into the psalm itself, let's ask the question, what is significant about the psalms? There's at least two things that I think will help you over the next few weeks as we study these various psalms together. The first significance is that these psalms are inspired songs that we use for prayer or praises. Uh, But it's not simply that they are inspired songs or prayers. Uh, Part of the significance of the psalms is that These are prayers or praises that reflect the emotions and feelings that can be pent up in our hearts. Uh, We don't know how to communicate our emotions into words in a way that is honoring to the Lord all the time. We feel pain and suffering at deep levels. We feel deep betrayal. We are frustrated by lies being told and the twisting of truth. We see the world that is rejecting God. The psalmist sees all of those, and as a human, the psalmist has a response in his heart towards the lies that are being told or the sin that is going on in the world. The psalmist is like you, in other words. And so the psalmist comes along and is able to, under the inspiration of God, articulate those feelings and emotions in such a way that is pleasing to God. And so then those psalms become handles for us to hold on to so that we can identify, oh, here's an issue in life that I am experiencing. Here's the feelings and the emotions that are within my soul because people have lied or betrayed or the world is sinful. This is what I'm feeling inside. How do I articulate that? And the psalmist helps us do that. So they are inspired by God and they provide us with a way to open up the door of our soul. It's as though God is asking his children, is your soul like a musty basement? Is it cellar-like with all kinds of damp, raw emotions? Do you want to open up your heart with those emotions to God, with your frustration, with your confusion? and even express those things to God Almighty? The Psalms are ways in which we can do this and honor God. There are Psalms of praise, don't get me wrong, there there are several Psalms of praise. When life is going well, those Psalms are also means that we can hold on to and articulate our hearts to God. But most of the time, 
we find ourselves resonating with the pain that is expressed in the Psalms. So the Psalms are inspired prayers that we can use to express our hearts to God. So that's one significant element of the Psalms. There's another aspect to the Psalms that you pick up as you read through them. Not only do the Psalms represent us in our agony in our, and our hurt, but they take us from our place of hurting and they move us along to being hopeful in God. The Psalms show God in all of his power and in, and his authority. So you have this relationship in the Psalms where David can pour out his heart of pain and suffering. But what keeps the book of Psalms from being depressing, being this book of despair, is that nearly always these Psalms present God as the one who is all-powerful or as the one who is the creator or the one in whom you can place your hope. God is the one to whom every person is accountable. And so the psalmist is saying, I'm struggling with all of this. And we say, yes, I identify with that. And we keep following the psalmist through his struggle. And then you see him saying, but I will trust in the Lord God because he is the one who is over all things. So he takes us from our emotions and gives us hope at the end. Now, I've just put several of the psalms from one, two, and three up on the screen so that you can see this tension that's there. Psalm 1, verse 5, therefore the wicked, oh, my emotions are poured out about the wickedness going on. But what does he say about the wicked? Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment of God, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And you see that where you see sin on one hand and frustration at it, but now he moves quickly to an answer here. Hey, the wicked are not always going to stand in the judgment. God is all powerful and everyone is accountable to him. So you hold on to those two things. Yes, the world is wicked and I feel that frustration, but God is the judge. Psalm 2, verse 10, you look at the world and all of its chaos. Here's one for you. Now, therefore, O kings, O rulers of the world, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. So you look at the world and you see all of the rulers in the world. You're like, okay, there's a lot of mess going on. But notice where he goes. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And now blessed are all who take refuge in him. I mean, do you see that going on where... The world scene is chaos, and your emotions are like, what is going on in this part of the world? What is going on with our rulers and our leaders? And now he takes you from the rulers to the son in whom our hope is. Psalm 3, verses 1 through 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation from him and God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. There it is again. There are his foes that are surrounding him. They're knocking his salvation. And then we say, I think I resonate with that. But don't just leave me there. And he doesn't leave you there. He takes you to God who is a shield for him, the glory of God, the one who lifts him up. So nearly every psalm, that involves a struggle, is keeping this tension in place. There is the hurting and pain on one hand that we all connect with, and then on the other hand, there is God who is all-powerful and full of steadfast love, and this is what we need as we walk the Christian life. 
Uh, We have feelings and emotions that God has given to us, but our feelings and emotions are not authoritative. What God does is he graciously brings us through those feelings and emotions and says, here is how you can rightly steward those. Here is where you can point those. They can be funneled towards God because God is all-powerful and in control. So today we're studying Psalm 5, and you might ask the question, why Psalm 5? Why not verse, or 1 through 4? Um, I was going through my file of psalms that I've preached in the past, and I've preached through 1 through 4, and I just thought, okay, let's start with Psalm 5. So that was it, all right? That's why we're beginning with Psalm 5. The psalm has 12 verses, and here's the big idea that I would like for you to be able to walk away from, from Psalm 5. I'll read it two, maybe three times for you. Here's the big idea. You can rejoice knowing that God graciously protects you from the destructive lies of people. You can rejoice knowing that God graciously protects you from the destructive lies of people. I'll read it one more time. You can rejoice knowing that God graciously protects you from the destructive lies of people. There's four points to the sermon. I'll give you the four points as we go through this morning. But point number one is this. You can be confident that God hears your prayers. You can be confident that God hears your prayers. So verses one through three are the opening to the psalm. There are a few observations that we can make here. Uh, The title is to the choir master for the flutes, Psalm of David. As he moves into verse one, He says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. You've seen little children crawl up on the lap of a parent. And with their little hands, they they grab the dad's face. And they direct that face to their face in order to make sure that they are being heard. They want their request to be heard by their dad. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He is saying, give ear to me, God. It's as though God might be distant in his feelings. And so he's saying, God, I'm pleading with you, give ear to my cause. And then he uses the word, consider what's going on. And then he goes on again and he says, give attention to what's taking place. As though God might be distracted. We know he's not, but our feelings sometimes tell us that. You might remember sitting in class and you were constantly raising your hand as a second grader, eagerly hoping to get your question to be heard by the teacher. There's your hand shooting up in the air. Is the teacher going to call on me? And you're wondering, why is she not answering me? Does the teacher not see my hand? Or does the teacher see my hand and yet is ignoring me? This is a psalm where the psalmist is saying, God, my hand is up in the air. I'm coming to you with prayer because there's something hard going on in my life. Now, please give ear to what I have to say. Consider what I have to say. Give attention to what I have to say. And you'll also notice here in these verses that what is on his heart is very heavy. He uses this word called groaning. It's a groaning that he has, and he uses this phrase, This is a cry that I have to you. He's desiring to give expression to his distress that he's in. It's like a 911 call. And for a brief moment, David is saying, God, please listen to me. I have a huge problem in my life. 
I'm crying to you. Now, the, another observation in these verses is the direction God or David is looking in the middle of his pain. The problem is present, but you can see that David has turned his gaze from the problem to God. He looks to God, and there are three names that David uses. The names of God are important because they communicate how David can see different attributes or different, if you will, actions of God. It's no mistake that he uses different names for God here. In verse 1, he addresses God as the Lord, meaning this is the name that God used when he established his covenant with his people. This is a covenantal name, meaning that God is in relationship with his people. The second name that he uses in verse 2, and he calls God his king, which obviously tells us that God is a ruler and that David sees himself in submission to this one who reigns over his life. So God, I am in relationship with you and God, you are my king and I do see myself as being submissive. You are the one who reigns over me. I'm not being arrogant right now. Third name in verse two is the name God, which is Elohim here which is the name that God uses for himself in Genesis 1 as the creator of all things. So he supersedes everything in creation. He's over all of the affairs of creation. And so you see David directing his attention to God, and this is important, folks, because when trials come into your life, the kind of trials that are outside of your control, you and I are brought to a place that shows us what we truly think about God and ourselves. We're brought to a place where we are seeing whether or not our gaze is on the trial and trying to grapple with it in our own strength, or if our gaze is on Lord King God, the one who is over all things. So let me ask you just a question as we look at verses 1 through 3. Is there something heavy on your heart this morning? Have you been betrayed? Have people lied about you? Is there a deception that you're aware of? We'll see that later. That's why I'm asking those questions. But let's ask the second question. How much time have you spent in prayer this week? How much time have you spent rehashing the problem in your own mind, playing it back over and over again with the rewind play, rewind play. Now let's edit it and say what I would have said in there kind of thing. Are you focusing on the problem or the one God, Lord, King, who is capable of bringing you through the problem? David is confident that God hears his prayers. Now what is going on in David's life Look over at verses 9 and 10, still under point number 1. Specifically in verse 9, we see the trial. People are spreading lies. In verse 9, David says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Some believe that this psalm was written when David's son, Absalom, was spreading lies so that David's rule as a king was kind of on the brink of tottering. Eventually, he had to run out of town and seek refuge. 
Um, We don't know specifically if that's the background, but we do know that David sees this challenge that there are lies that are being spread. There is no truth in their mouth, and they are flattering other people with their tongue in order to get people on their side. And so the question that we could ask ourselves in a very pointed way in terms of application is, has anyone ever lied about you? Said anything about you that was not true? Anybody ever accused you of wrong motives, then dragged your name through the mud? Um, Are you experiencing the weight of of lies that have just just caused all kinds of havoc in your life? You could take a step back and ask yourself a second question in terms of rounding out or broadening out the application. Maybe you're the type of person who is insecure, thinking that other people are constantly dragging your name down in the mud. This psalm is for you. We should take our prayers to God during these times. Point number two. You can be confident that God is intensely opposed to liars. This is verses four through six. You can be confident that God is intensely opposed to liars. You see this in verse four with some of the strongest language about God in the Bible. Uh, Verse four says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. There's no part of wickedness that God enjoys. He doesn't even chuckle at a kind of dirty joke that we might tend to chuckle at and maybe sweep under the rug and say, I see the humor in it. It's wrong. I kind of enjoyed it. It was funny. Ha, ha, ha. No, it's wrong with God. There's no wickedness that dwells with God. There's no room for sin with him. And that's good. We find hope that God does not tolerate sin. And the psalmist is saying, God, you don't tolerate the sin that's being committed against me. Okay, so David has an advocate here. The language heightens in verses 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Now, He is articulating this to God, and it's truth. The boastful, those who are prideful, shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Again, notice God's character. Notice how David is focusing on God, and the language that he uses is harsh here. God hates all evildoers. God destroys those who speak lies. God abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. So what do we do with it? This is not your John 3.16 sermon right now. There are two ways to take this passage. One way is to look at it through a literary device called metonymy. Metonymy is a figure of speech which uses substituted words in order to point to something else. So, in this case, we might substitute evildoers for evil works. So we could read it this way. Um, God, you hate all the evil works, not the evildoers. Um. He doesn't hate the liars, he just hates the lies. That's one way to take it, but I don't think that David is using metonymy here for two reasons. Number one, verse six, look at what happens in verse six. You destroy those 
who speak lies. God is going to bring destruction upon the individuals, not upon the actions. So there is a wrath or judgment that is coming upon the person, not the work. And second, if metonymy is being employed here, we should also employ it when he talks about the righteous later on in the psalm, where God loves the righteous, but is it that God loves the individual, the righteous, or the works of the righteous? So no, God loves the righteous person. God hates the evildoer. Have you thought about that before? That God is a God of love, yes, but he is also a God of holy wrath and judgment. Here's how Spurgeon said it. It is not a little dislike, but a thorough hatred which God bears to workers of iniquity. To be hated of God is an awful thing. Oh, let us be very faithful in warning the wicked around us, for it will be a terrible thing for them to fall in the hands of an angry God. We consider verses like John 3, verse 36, where we see the wrath of God remains on him, an individual forever. Or Ephesians 2, verse 3, where we were by nature children of wrath. Or Revelation 21, verse 8, that I think is on the screens for us. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and here's where David is, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So when you get to the end of this, you can see that you don't need to be the person of vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You don't need to do wrong in order for your view to stand. God will take care of all evil. Now, if I left that thought there, we might be scratching for an answer. Like, does God love the evildoers as well? Yes, he does. So I was overseeing a VBS years ago when I was in seminary. There were several hundred children that came there that week. And the VBS used a seminary student, which is always dangerous, to teach the kids. And that seminary student had just come across this psalm, apparently. So that night, or one of the nights, he got up in front of several hundred kids and said, God hates you, God hates you, God hates you. And I'm sitting in the back thinking, oh, this is gonna be interesting. And one little kid raises up his hand, God hates you. But God loves you, said the little kid. And the guy went on, yes, but God hates you. And the whole night was, God is a God of wrath. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, this is not really the best way to present the gospel to perhaps unbelieving children. And so he did come back the next night, but he left too many people hanging. Okay, is it possible, though, for God to be filled and demonstrate more than one emotion at the same time? It is. Okay, so you have to balance that out in your mind. We're challenged by that because we're limited in our capacity for emotions. But I want you to know this is a truth from Psalm 5 that God does hate the evildoer. You see it in Revelation 21, verse 8. But you also know that God loves the world. And God loves sinners. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were what? Still sinners, Christ died for us. 
What we don't want to do is minimize God's character because God becomes smaller. Maximize his character and God becomes great. God loves the evildoers, but you can be confident as you read through this psalm that God is intensely opposed to all liars. You can trust God with that this morning. Third point. You can be confident that God's love protects his children. God's love protects his children. This is in verses 7 and 8 and 11 and 12. In verse 7, David says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you. The house of God was the tabernacle or the temple that was at Shiloh at the time. It was a place of security for God's people because they knew that his presence dwelt there in the Holy of Holies. And so to go to the temple was to experience closeness with God. David was close to God. But notice what David attributes this personal comfort to at the beginning of verse 7. He says that I was able to do this. I was able to enter into your house, not because of what I have done, but notice where he attributes it. He attributes it to the steadfast love of God here. This term steadfast love in Hebrew, some of you have heard this, is the term hesed, which goes beyond romantic love. It's the kind of love that is committed no matter what. It is relentless in its nature. It continues on unconditionally no matter what you have done. It's I have fixed my love upon you and I'm going to carry my love out upon you. It's God's commitment to love his people. And so David is saying, that's the kind of love that God has for me. It's the kind of love that has made it possible for me to draw in close to him. God has pursued me with this love. And we see this throughout scripture. Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five. In love, in this kind of love, God was acting towards us. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In love, God brought you into adoption as a child with him. God was acting in love. And so through his love towards you now, you are a son or daughter of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, unconditional love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you can see, here we are as sinners needing a sacrifice for our sins. And here is Jesus, the sin bearer, whom our sins were transferred upon so that we could have a right relationship with God. And so what we see throughout scripture is God loves his people. And it's a gift for us knowing that when we are experiencing all the fallout of lies and deception from other people, the words that people have said about you, when you're feeling like, no, I need to justify myself, God is saying, no worries, no matter what's been said about you, no matter what you're feeling about yourself, you need to know this, my steadfast love is upon you in this moment, and you can hang on to that then. And this is what David finds comfort in. I'm able to draw close to you in this moment because of your steadfast love towards me. So this past week, uh, I was able to sit with Ed Kinney. He went home to be with the Lord this week. 91 years old and loved, loved God. You've heard me say this, that it is actually an encouragement for me to sit with dying Christians. 
And I wish that we all could have that experience because it sobers us up for what is most important in life. So over the past week, I was in and out a couple of times. There he was on the couch, washcloth over his head. I walk into the front room. He shoots his arm up in the air. Hi, pastor. I thought he was doing pretty well. So good to see you. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. Have a seat. And it's obvious that his week, his face is kind of caving in a little bit, losing weight. His eyes are a little more tired looking. So I sit down in the chair and I ask people this question. Um, Ed, none of us knows how long we have here. If this sickness takes your life, are you assured of Jesus Christ as your savior? And he says, absolutely. I just don't think I'm saved. I know I'm saved. And so we read through Romans 8, and at the end of the chapter is that section that says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can pull us apart from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's important that when we are in those stages of life, it's interesting that the one thing that matters is not how much you've accomplished, not the things you've been able to check off your to-do list. The one thing that Ed is saying amen to is nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's his steadfast love for you in that moment. So you're experiencing the emotions and the pain of people lying and the deception in the world that's going on. And so now we're just self-absorbed with this. It's like we got the magnifying glass on it times 10, times 100, times 1,000. This is life. And God would have us say, wait a second, focus on the steadfast love of God for you. He is with you through all of this. Be comforted knowing that God's love for you invites you to draw near to him. We can also desire the leading of God. Look at verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So God, this is hard. And it's right for us to come to him and say, God, this is hard. There's, there's things going on. And now the psalmist says, but Lord, I need you to navigate. I need you to go out in front of me and lead me. I want to be led in your righteousness. And perhaps he's saying this because inside every one of us at that time is the potential for bitterness, sinfulness, and selfishness. It's the same language that we see in Psalm 23 where the shepherd leads us beside the still waters. Here he is saying, God, I don't want to be led by selfishness. I want to be led in your righteousness here. And then look down at verses 11 and 12. But let all of you who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And so three times, David says that what can be truly happening in his heart, what can truly be happening doesn't have to be bitterness. Three times, rejoice, joy, exult. My joy can be in you, not in my circumstances. And this is the freedom that God is teaching us. Okay, here's the circumstances. It hurts. It's painful. But God, give ear to what I'm saying. Give attention. Consider my groaning. And look where he ends up at the end of verse 12. 
I can rejoice in God. Maybe you're one of those people who likes to read a book backwards, or you read the last chapter of the book before you start on the first chapter. And as you go through the book that way, your emotions are a little less extreme because you know that this character that comes in, well, he must not last or she must not last because I know what happens in the last chapter. That's what we practice as Christians. We know the last chapter. We know how God concludes. We know who God is. We know that he shows favor and blesses his people with salvation. And that's Psalm 5 for us today. I'm in the middle of this plot. There's lies, there's deceptions. People are telling lies about me. It's hairy, it's awful, I don't like it. And then David brings us along. He says, it's okay to articulate all this to the Lord. And then in verse 12, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. You can be confident in God's protection over your soul. Now that's Psalm 5 for us today. But as you see on your outline, there's still one more point. The Bible has one more quote from Psalm 5 that I would like to draw your attention to. Point number four is this. I can be confident, or you can be confident, that God's love, oh, sorry, can you put that forth? I can be confident that God has given grace to me. I can be confident that God has given grace to me. It's interesting, in Romans 3, Paul uses language to describe all of us. In Romans 3, he's laying out the case for us as sinners in need of God's grace. So earlier in the chapter, verses 9 through 13, he says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? So in chapter 1, he shows like the immorality of the Gentiles. And then in chapter 2, he shows like the inward heart sins of the Jews. And so in verse, or chapter 3, he says, What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, so he's drawing upon Scripture, as it has been written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And here's the phrase from Psalm 5. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. So Paul is laying out the case that all of us are sinners. And he goes back to Psalm 5, this psalm where David is saying, there are people who are lying about me. They're flattering other people. They're in sin. And Paul comes forward and says, um, that's all of us. We've all been guilty of what we hate. And so he continues on in verse 23 where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because we are Psalm 5 individuals too. Verse 24, we see God in his gracious love 
but we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here we are as sinners. We've committed sin against God. And here is God, the gracious one who puts Jesus forward to take upon himself the sins that we've committed. And here comes God's judgment upon Jesus Christ, the judgment that we deserve for our sins. And Jesus' life, the life of perfect obedience, is offered as a gift. And those who receive this gift in faith, God says, you are justified, you are declared righteous. We've all been liars. We've all been guilty of the sin in Psalm 5. So as we study this this morning, I think we're left with two encouragements. Number one is this. We're left with the encouragement of confidence. In a world full of liars and lying, God invites us to himself, and he invites us to place our confidence in him. Wherever you've been, whatever people have said about you, as a Christian, we are called to now take our gaze above the problem and place our gaze on God, and we can have confidence in him. And then secondly, we're humbled because God shows us that we are really no better than the world of liars, we're, we're no better than the people that have caused us problems, yet he justified us by his grace in Jesus Christ. We're confident, and yet we're humbled. We're confident, and yet we're, we're confident in what God has done, and we're humbled by what God has done. Two words that each Christian should be holding as we leave this service this morning. Confident in God and humbled by God. You can rejoice knowing that God will ultimately protect his people. Let's pray.